On this week's show, we travel to the Beijing Auto Show, where John McElroy and three of China's top auto analysts discuss what it takes to win in the world's largest auto market. Coming up next on AutoLine This Week. Underwriting for AutoLine This Week has been provided by Borg Warner. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. Welcome to AutoLine This Week, where we're going to be talking about the Chinese automotive industry. And the reason we're doing that, besides being in China, is I've got three experts on this subject. Starting with Michael Dunn, the president of Dunn Automotive. James Chow is the managing director for Asia Pacific for IHS Automotive. Bill Russo is the managing director for Gaofeng in Greater China. And I want to thank all three of you for joining me on AutoLine this week. Great to be here. What's really going on in the Chinese market right now? And, and I ask in that sense is that we hear it's slowing down, the growth rates aren't that great. When I look at the sales numbers, they really don't look that bad. In fact, for some brands and in some segments, they're absolutely red hot. Michael, we'll start with you. What's happening here? End of last year, the market started to slow. It's not what it was five years ago when we had routine double-digit growth. It has slowed to single digit, but within that growth, the big story is SUVs. And in particular, explosion of demand for Chinese branded SUVs. They now account for half of all SUVs in China, sold in China, and SUVs as a share of total sales is already up to one in three. So SUVs craze here in China, other segments a lot softer. James, what's the growth rate? Uh, Michael said single digit. Is it the six, six and a half percent or is it even lower than that? We see see 6% for 2016. So far this year, it's been about 8%. So it's outpacing our annual growth rate. Why, Why is it doing better than you expected? I think because of a couple of things. One is this tax cut that Michael had alluded to from last year has really buoyed the market. And, um, you know, what's that done? What that's done really is all of these Chinese automakers we thought were left for dead three or four years ago have seen a resurgence. They've picked up five points in market share here. Incredible over the last year. So selling a lot of cars, making a lot of money. They're here to stick around. Bill, your view. I agree with the points that that were made. I think the net expansion of the number of people, the middle class population, is continuing to fuel the demand for mobility. Uh, But the mobility is being satisfied in different ways than it was just a few years ago. A lot of the cars on the road in China are new. They were sold in the last five to seven years. So you do have an aging car population. Uh, You're growing incrementally at a smaller rate, although it's a much bigger number now than it was just a few years ago. Uh, But there's different ways that people want to be mobile. SUVs, I think, is one obvious trend. Uh, The other other trend that's very important in China is connected cars. You see a lot of uh, discussion today about uh, the the convergence of the traditional mechanical car with the internet-powered car. The connected mobility uh, popularity in China is very noteworthy. And uh, why is that? Why would it be more popular here having that uh, internet connection uh, to, to the car? I think per- pervasive connectivity. Uh, I think I, I heard a number recently that said there's 700 million people uh, on WeChat. Uh, think of how many people are connected through their mobile device. They expect the car to be as connected as other places where they spend their time. Uh, and they're using the mobile connectivity to actually get a car when they need it. A lot of people don't own a car today in China and have the ac- access to private transportation through their mobile device. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
the other thing too uh, with this uh, slowdown going on is I, I thought that there was going to be a consolidation of mm -hmm. amongst Chinese automakers. As I walk around uh, the auto show here, I'm, I'm astonished at the number of car companies, the different number of brands, the plethora of different models that are here. But I thought that the government had set a goal of reducing the number of car companies here because there's literally just too many of them. What happened with those plans? Right, there's a fundamental contradiction in the way China wants to grow its economy. On the one hand, the central government is saying, let's just have a few automakers like in Japan, in Germany, in the United States. On the other hand, they're saying the key to economic growth is to decentralize power to the provinces and the cities. Well, every province and city wants to have a car company in their backyard. So these two realities, these two objectives are not in sync, and as a result, you don't have consolidation. You have a lot of small companies still spread around the country. And a lot of these OEMs are supported by local governments, mm. um, whether they're provinces or cities, um, and they represent employment. Um, and, and when we think about the large international OEMs of employing hundreds of thousands, maybe millions in some cases, of employees across the world, think about a, a city here and what an OEM could represent by employing 60,000 uh, uh, employees. It's significant when you add it all up. In, in, uh, in most countries where, where consolidation has happened, you have one, two, three cities maybe, a tops, in the country that make cars. Uh, here you have a dozen. And each of those cities has a set of joint ventures and they have a home company that provides the uh, investment to build up that infrastructure for that industry. Uh, they're not going to give that up easily. So consolidation is a lot of government interest in preserving the status quo. Even though the central government may have an agenda to try to consolidate, the provincial governments and the municipal governments who've invested, they don't necessarily follow the central government's directive. That's well, right. What I find so but, interesting is in, in the rest of the world, there's talk about need for more consolidation, mm -hmm. that all the OEMs say we need to have more scale, hence we got to buy out a lot of merger and uh, acquisition activity. Can these smaller Chinese companies survive? Yeah, China, there's a Chinese expression that says, don't ask the market, ask the mayor. <laughs> so what that reminds us of is that here in this country, there's phenomenal economic growth, but it's all under the umbrella of control, both at the central level and local level, cities and provinces. The government is hand in glove with business. So you can't have a clearing of a market so easily. The government's going to have the final say. And also a lot of these Chinese automakers, I think, are pursuing an asset light type of uh, model. Asset light meaning maybe they don't have a full R&D center. Maybe they rely more on the tier one component manufacturers, system manufacturers, to build most of the car for them. So, um, you know, it's a different kind of model than what we see uh, elsewhere. Therefore, perhaps they don't need to, in their own minds, uh, produce one, two, three million vehicles a year. Maybe a hundred to two hundred thousand vehicles, which would be a shock to an international automaker. Maybe that's enough for them. And, and there's another dimension of it that a lot of the, uh, the, the, the local Chinese players depend very much on their foreign joint ventures to contribute to their profitability. So the ability to stand alone as your own branded car manufacturer is not as great. If you're a Brilliance Automotive in Shenyang, uh, on the merit of your own sales, you probably wouldn't have survived. But the fact that BMW contributes a large share of your profitability. Subsidizes it. 
it subsidizes your local business. So the, the, the need to consolidate immediately isn't there for most well, of these I, companies. I, I can see where the Chinese companies that have a big foreign partner, like Brilliance with BMW and uh, all the automakers that we know of in the West have partners here. And then there's some independent Chinese companies that impress me as well, Great Wall, Cherry, Geely. Mm -hmm. But then there's a zillion others here that I've never even heard of before. Uh, some we haven't either. <laughs> <laughs> you see them at the show. That's right. So what's your prediction? Are they going to survive? Will this model still work? 10 years into the future or beyond? I think at the low end of the market, you'll see some just start to disappear. Some of them will not be able to meet future fuel efficiency, safety regulations. They just can't afford to at those volumes. So, so those will start to uh, be called out, certainly. Uh, of the mid to large ones, I think they have a pretty good chance of, of continuing. I would say that the question has two dimensions. Of the traditional manufacturers, many won't survive on their own. They don't make enough cars. They haven't earned their right to exist in the marketplace. But there are startup companies in China that are practicing a different model. And I think those are very interesting. Experimental ideas, and maybe most of them won't work, but the idea of an XDV or a La Eco, uh, which is trying to do something in the mobility space, which is more of the connected car technology. It isn't about the car and the hardware. It's more about the connectivity to the end user. Uh, and I think those types of business models might have some traction. And do you think it's uh, the fact that we see these new converging technologies, that is, of connected cars and electric cars, with the Chinese government especially putting a massive push on converting this fleet to electric? Absolutely. I, yeah. I think the, the natural step for me, it was never about jumping right to electric cars from traditional ownership of the ICE-powered car. When you have a popular segment of the market, which is cars on demand, uh, and that's a large number of cars, Didi Chuxing, the mobility service in China, books over 10 million rides a day. You have a natural place where a fleet of cars can be electrified in large number, and an infrastructure can be built around that mm -hmm. to drive the cost of electric vehicles down and make it more popular for the mainstream. And just for our audience that may not know, Didi being sort of the Uber of Uber China. Uber of China. Uber of China. Yeah. Right. Only much bigger than Uber. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Huge. You know, but it's really not clear to me how these new EV-connected car companies can monetize uh, their product. Um, it's a service. They keep on th talking about well, the vehicle. Maybe we'll even give the vehicle away, and, and we'll have the stream of services that go through the vehicle. Um, but I just don't see how that can generate the type of revenues that you would need to sustain a, a real auto company. Kind of reminds you of the early days of the internet where they said, oh, profits don't matter, <laughs> no. only eyeballs matter. <laughs> matter. But they're chasing something. And this does actually remind me of the year 2000. And what are they chasing? They're chasing a market cap number, and I would point to Tesla, $35 billion. Mm. Um, they produce a pretty limited number of vehicles, but $35 billion is very attractive to these new startups that are saying, I could be the next Elon Musk in China. I could be the next Tesla. Many of these companies have, in fact, gone to California. They've set up, we could name Faraday, uh, Next EV, BYD, Karma. Um, they're coming. Uh, Baidu has a research institute there. Where are they, they going to, to California? It's where the technology is, where the people is, and that's where the yeah. uh, Tesla Innovation precedent pipeline. is, Innovation Hub. Then the market's back here. If they sit here in China, they may not be able to tap into that same yeah. world-class technology. If you can tap the brains from 
the mature markets and the innovation hubs around the world and, and marry that to the scale of a market like China, it's, it's a winning combination. But to James's point, you have to prove that the business model for commercialization of the product has a, a merit to it. I think the traditional hardware model that we know is sell, it, sell a car to an owner. These companies are talking about selling a service to a user. Not sure exactly if those models are proven in terms of the economics. Right. right. What's all your sense of uh, the government's push to really get electrification going here? And I don't mean just plug-ins, which we see right now, uh, plug-in hybrids, that is, but pure electric. Will the market accept it here? We'll accept it if they put a lot of money on the hood, which they, yeah. which they are. Yeah, they are. Uh, they continue to sustain it as a number one priority here in China. They don't want to be dependent on oil imports, even though oil is not expensive anymore. They want to lead in a technology. They don't want to be dependent on foreign global automakers transferring technology. We can lead in electrics. Yeah. And they also see that Teslas and Googles and others are already jumping to a new form of transportation. Why not us? And electrics are the, the channel for that. And I think this, this segment of the on-demand population, we, we think of the market as manufacturers to sell a product to an owner. Uh, there's a huge market in China for people who are graduating from public transportation into private transportation, whether it's owned or used. That's a gigantic segment that you could target for electrification. And the government merely has to say to the operators of Didi or Uber fleets, I'd like to, put, if you want a license plate for that car, I want that to be an electric car. So the, the, the straight line shot to electrification is a lot faster. Bill, explain that a bit about the license plate and how critical that is getting a car here right. in China. Getting a car in China requires that you, you compete for a license plate. In some of the largest cities in China, that's a constrained resource. Uh, so you, in, in Shanghai, for example, you have to pay about 13,000 U.S. dollars just to get a license plate. In Say pay, that again, just so the audience gets 13,000 bucks license just plate. for a plate. And if, if you want to get a, a car in Beijing, you have to win a lottery, basically. You have, you have to be lucky enough to, yeah. to have your number come up. Uh, so but if you get an electric car, no problem, you get, an electric you get the plate car, for no free, free, right? 13,000 right off the top. Right. Yeah. So, so the, a lot of support from the government from this, whether it's license plates or actual money, Let's back up a second. Is this the right technology route today to take? Um, and I think that's a critical question, which in the government's mind, they've made their mind. But I think as, as, as an analyst, I think there are alternatives here. Um, the vehicles which are eligible for the subsidy or the free license plate are plug-in hybrids and pure electric battery vehicles. Mm -hmm. But that leaves out a technology which has done well in other markets, the United States would be one, conventional hybrids. Um, which are a lot less costly, perhaps don't even need such a big subsidy, um, but could increase the fuel efficiency of the entire fleet probably much quicker than battery electric vehicles can. And, and yet they may be dependent on foreigners for that technology, exactly. and that's what well, isn't that, the, isn't that the real reason behind this? I mean, Toyota is the world leader in hybrid technology. It's mm -hmm. a Japanese company. Yeah. Why would the Chinese yeah. government want to help the, the regulations largest Japanese Regulations in China, company? by definition, are to create advantage for the home team. It's about industrial policy. And to build up a domestic automotive industry is in the interest of the nation. Mm -hmm. 
And if the, if the innovation in the technology field is conventional hybrid, there's no advantage to China. So they're, they're looking to create a differentiation point for the domestic. The other industry. thing too is, uh, of course, most of the electricity produced in China comes from coal. And I've seen a couple of studies that have come right. out that say pollution might actually get worse right. if you can make everything well, electric. It's here. clearly not about uh, environmental concerns. It's about industrial policy and creating energy security as part of the policy. There's plenty of coal here. So if I can burn coal to generate the electrons that go in the battery, it's better than buying the oil from the Middle East and creating the, uh, the electrons that way. So industrial policy, it's really a national security issue for them as well. National security, stability, uh, the educated urban elites won't tolerate the polluted skies in Beijing and Shanghai and Guangzhou and other big cities. So, hey, we're taking action. Look at the electric cars we're putting on the road. That's good. There's no emissions, see? Even if de facto, the actual amount of pollution doesn't change much from coal plants, it's okay. It's an action they're taking to placate the masses. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll move some of the pollution out of the cities. It some will. It some. lengthens the tailpipe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, we were talking earlier about OEM consolidation and whether that was going to happen or not. I'd like you guys to talk about dealerships here, mm. car dealerships, because based on you know my observation of what's going on, same sort of story, way too many dealers, mm -hmm. most of whom are not making money. What are yep. your thoughts on that? One of the, and this is an area that's going to be undergoing some significant disruption. By the way, it's, it's a quite different scenario for the way dealers are deployed in China versus the United States. And the way they make their money is quite different. They make primarily their money from selling new cars here, which means they get sick very quickly if the new car sales slow down because they have no other place to go. Uh, the, the, the development of the capabilities of dealers in China toward after-sales business as well as used cars is, is relatively weak compared to the mature markets. Yeah, very, very heavily weighted to new car sales as, as Bill has, has uh, mentioned, but uh, I do think the regulators have noticed. You know, used cars, as an example, is a heavily regulated industry, and that's why a lot of new car dealers aren't in there. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that they're looking that if there's deregulation there, if, if, if dealers can get into that business, um, I think it'll be a, a big help. Looks like a terrific opportunity for the big giants out of North America to come in. It's consolidation You mean city. the Auto Nations, yes. the Penske Automotive? That's what they do. They do service well. They do, they're not focused only on sales. They can bring a lot of value to this market, consolidate, buy cheaply because many dealers, independents, are losing money. It's time. It seems to be the right time for would this it be to come Would the market be open to that, i.e. in the sense that if you're an OEM and want to come here, you have to get a Chinese partner? Mm -hmm. Would they have to do something like that? You can buy outright. Uh, you always have to connect in some way with the local government. Right. But you yeah. can Ask buy it outright. Again, yeah. right? <laughs> right. Even though you're not required by policy to do it, it probably makes sense to have a local partner who really understands China. Because one thing is for sure, the, the, the retail network and the after-sales business and the used car business are not going to evolve to become like the U.S. market. It will evolve to be Chinese. And you sometimes need a local uh, set of eyes and ears to understand the nuance of insurance. the Insurance. Right. Kind of insurance policy. James, will there be consolidation amongst dealers? I think so. I think you're seeing it now. You're seeing larger groups uh, forming. Um, you're seeing some consolidation among those large groups. Uh, so I think you'll see that continue. We talked earlier about uh, all this connected car and, and where that might be going. Uh, 
how interested is the Chinese consumer in that kind of technology? I mean, it's hard to gauge, right? Because it's not really available just mm -hmm. yet. We're, mm -hmm. we're on the verge of that. But what's your sense of how the Chinese consumer would react to that? Well, one interesting comparison is look at a Chinese driver versus an American driver. We grew up acceleration, braking, handling. These were the just fundamental things you looked for in joy of driving a car. In China, with the traffic, it's been getting from point A to point B. So their interest is more in convenience, comfort. If they can be able to connect while they're in the car and use their time that way, I think it's, they're much more likely to follow that path than average Americans are. They're primed for it because they don't have a legacy of saying, well, what kind of car do I want to drive today and how is it handled and how fast can I go? Yeah. I, I would offer that, that if you look at these mobility experiments that are going on, be, these are being done by, backed by internet companies. DD Chuxing is backed by Alibaba and Tencent. Baidu is already a big player in the car with, with car, CarPlay. They, they have a, um, an ecosystem of services that they can present to the person in the car. And it's the commercial aggressiveness of these internet companies that will drive more connectivity features into the car. Because the more connected the person is in the car, the more you can do business with that person when they're in the car. It's interesting what you're saying, Bill. It's sort of what's happening in the States, too, just as we see Google and Apple and other tech companies who five years ago could give a rip about the automotive industry now are all over it. Right. Sounds like the same thing's happening in China. Right, and, and because people pervasively are connected here, uh, the fact is that the internet companies have already very deep relationships with the people already before they ever get in a car. So the, when, when people want to be connected in the car, they'll, they'll want to deal with, with brands and, and platforms that they're familiar with. Now, I'm un, a little unsure as to what an automaker can actually offer that the consumer doesn't have already. So if I'm in the car, or let's say it's an autonomous car, it's like I'm on a train, mm -hmm. and I'm on a bus or on a plane, and, or, right. and I'm connected already, mm -hmm. and I'm ju doing just fine. Now the automaker is going to come in and here's something brand new for you. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, perhaps I don't even need it because I've already got it. So there's a lot of excitement around there. I'm not sure that the consumer uh, is wanting to buy that from an automaker. But, you know, I, and I hear exactly what you're talking about. Nonetheless, the automobile represents private space. Mm -hmm. You know, it's your own little cocoon, as it were, where you can set the temperature exactly the way you personally want it. You can put on the music that you want and the like. So might not that translate well here as well? It could. Although the, the applications applicable to a vehicle, I think, are actually pretty limited. Uh, I can think of radio, some telecommunications, some other messaging services, perhaps that, let's say, in a non-autonomously driven vehicle that don't distract the driver. Um, but beyond that, it, it gets pretty limited in terms of the amount of interaction you can actually do. Autonomous vehicle, which, let's say, could be 10, 15, 20 years out, that could actually be... Uh, something more interesting. I think when the car becomes a smart platform, uh, the, the, the question James raises, which is a good question, is how much incremental benefit do you get from having the features in the car versus other mobile devices that we already carry with us? I think that's a very legitimate question. But when you talk about innovation in the, in the context of smart technology, uh, my feeling is that the internet companies, when they start to experiment in mobility, will start to envision features of how to make the car a personalized device that will eventually become mainstream to the automakers. It may not be that the automaker has to be the internet company, 
but through some collaboration with the internet company, the technology in the car will become smart, location-based, and more personalized. And the, and, and the Apples and Googles of the world, they're really good at that human-machine interface. And that's actually maybe one of the most frightening things, perhaps, for automakers, is, is that these guys really know that know well, better Have than data. we do, right? I think the closest approximation we see in the auto industry today is Tesla, who comes out of Silicon Valley with a mindset of, if I need to upgrade features in this car, I could do it via software. It isn't just by having the next model come out. So this idea of innovation in electrons and in software is something that I think the auto industry should pay attention to. John, I was wanting to come back to SUVs for a moment yeah. because uh, the sensational growth in SUVs might suggest to the audience that, hey, this is mana from heaven for North American, we're the home of SUVs. We do SUVs better than anyone else. Mm. Caution, it's the Chinese who are growing the most. And if you look at how China's- The Chinese uh, domestic automakers. Domestic automakers are having a sensational growth spurt in SUVs. Now, why is that important? Because in the past, Chinese dominated truck and bus segment. You, there are no foreign players when it comes to trucks and buses here. Chinese private buyers always liked global brands and the Chinese could never make headway in there with their cars. The Geely's, the Cherries, the BYD's struggling around the fringes. With the SUVs, it's like the Chinese are coming in the side door, they're accepted, and it may mean a tipping point in terms of brand perceptions by China. It may be the beginning of Chinese people actually going, I love to own a Chinese brand and I'm proud to do so. And if that's true, beware foreign automakers because it, it, the Chi Chinese will get tougher and tougher as time goes on. What is it about SUVs that Chinese con consumers are just fine with buying a local brand? Price. Well, price? Price. The, the, the international automakers have enjoyed for many, many years uh, better pricing in the SUVs category than they do in the passenger car category. So they took that attitude to China, which left a very big price segment at the entry level for the Chinese to step into, which gives them better margins than the passenger And car. a lot of these, where they're growing with these types of vehicles, are where the Chinese automakers know the markets best. Maybe not Shanghai, Beijing, right, lower but tier China. through mainland. fourth and fifth yeah. tier cities in the mainland. Yeah. Very interesting point, you know, and what's so astonishing to me is it's really a global phenomenon. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's North America is definitely the home of the SUV, but we see this happening in Europe, Europe. Latin America, and especially mm -hmm. in China right mm -hmm. now. With that, we're going to have to wrap this up, guys. Boy, this conversation went by like that. Went really by fast. Good. I have one, one, I know we're out of time, but one spec yeah. speculative. Are we real allowed quick, to speculate? Fast. Uh, who's going to buy Jeep? Who's going to buy FCA? Oh, uh, probably one of the Chinese companies here on the floor. Yep. Hey, with that, we're going to have to wrap it up. Michael okay. Dunn, really appreciate your time. James Chow, Bill Russell, thanks so much for bringing us up to speed on what's going on in China. Underwriting for Autoline this week has been provided by Borg Warner.